Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Chapter 20, Life of David, so in our very last sermon series on the life of David. So we're jumping over to 1 Chronicles verse or chapter 29. Now I'm going to be using a big word here at the beginning of, my, uh, of the sermon, okay? So hopefully this is a word you've heard before, but it's a big word, okay? Can we all say it together, okay? I'm just going to make sure you're awake. It's, it's a deeply theological word. It's the word philanthropist. Can you say philanthropist? Okay, so many of you are probably familiar with great philanthropists in American history. Andrew Carnegie was probably one of the most famous philanthropists of the late 1800s. He's very famous for giving away almost all of his money. In the last 18 years of his life, he gave away money to charities, to education, to foundation, to universities, $350 million dollars which in today's 2015 equivalent would be $13.7 billion he gave away. Almost 90% of his fortune. In 1889, he wrote a little essay called The Gospel of Wealth, and he encouraged other philanthropists to give away their money. And so he was the second richest person in America at that time, but the richest person in America was John D. Rockefeller the world's richest man ever. He was the founder of Standard Oil and Gas. At his death in 1937, his wealth stood at $336 billion in today's numbers, making him the richest person in U.S. history. And his generosity came from his Baptist background. If you know, Rockefeller was a Baptist. And oftentimes when he would travel across the country, he would especially like to go to African-American Baptist churches, and he would be very generous in giving during the offering time. And so he gave away a lot of his money. So you think of Rockefeller and Carnegie, two big American names that gave away large amounts of wealth as billionaires during their time. So it got me thinking, what about today's billionaires? And I didn't want to ask who were the most generous of today's billionaires. I wanted to ask who were the stingiest. So who are the stingiest billionaires of today? There was a study done back between 2008 and 2013, a five-year study to look at Fortune 400, the top 10 richest people in America. Who are the stingiest billionaires today? Well, they are none other than the heirs of Sam Walton, the owners of Walmart. Rob, Jim, Alice, and Christy Walton are considered the stingiest of today's billionaires. Now, they have a net worth of about $8.6 million per day is basically what they make in dividends, okay? But in that five-year period combined, they gave away about $17.6 million, a little more than two days' worth of dividends over a five-year period. Warren Buffett, on the other hand, gave $8.4 billion to nonprofit organizations, 477 times more 
than the Waltons combined. Now, we look at this and we think these numbers are astronomical. I'm never going to be the richest person in America. I can't even think about dollars. I mean, I can't even think about thousands of dollars, billions of dollars. I'm not going to give away billions of dollars of money because I won't make that much money. But there's some things that we can understand from these people. When you think about philanthropy, when you think about generosity, when you think about giving to charity, it's very interesting to look at the lives of, of billionaires and see how they hold on to or give away their money. And so it's very interesting that as we conclude the life of David, I thought it would be a great time to preach on giving. Some of you are heading for the hills now. Because actually this is his last act as king in the building of the temple. David leads the people of Israel to give financially and generously to the building. And so this is really the last act as king. We've seen the, 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 the life of David over the past few months, and here we get to his final act as king to help Solomon, his son, build the temple. And so here's a question I've been asking as, as I've read First Chronicles 29, as I've studied it. Here's a huge question. This is a question that I ask myself. It's a question that as I actually, as I was doing sermon prep this week, there was a moment when I'm sitting there writing my sermon that I just was convicted by the Holy Spirit and began to, I didn't weep profusely, but I began to get a little sobby as far as my own heart and where my heart is in relationship to what God has called me personally to do. And so here's the question. Where does the motivation, where does the motivation to give financially to God's work actually come from? That's the first question. It should be up on your screen. Where does the motivation to give financially to God's work actually come from? Where does the motivation come from? You know, as pastor over the past 10 plus years, I I haven't probably preached on giving as much as I should, but when you go back and you look at Jesus's words in the gospels, over 33 percent of what he talked about was related to our financial and our material wealth. And so I think it's a vital issue for us to tackle as Christians, part of our discipleship, part of our obedience, part of growing in Christ is that whole issue of, of giving financially to the Lord. And so the question this morning is, where does that motivation come from to give to the work of the Lord? And in First Chronicles 29, we see this powerfully demonstrated. And so this chapter, really we're going to look at two parts, verses 1 through 9 and then verses 10 through um, 22. So let's read together 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 1 through 9 together. And David, the king, said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God so far as I was able. The gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, of gold of Ophir, 
and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house and for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold, silver for the things of silver. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Then the leaders of the Father's houses made freewill offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes the commanders of thousands and of hundreds and the officers of the great king's work. And they gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehael the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly For with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. So here's the main point of this first section. The people give willingly. The people give willingly. And so what I want us to do in this first passage of Scripture that we're looking at is I want us to look at three observations from this passage of Scripture about how the people gave willingly. And here's the first one, and it may not just jump right out at you, but this is what we see in the very first aspect of this passage. Number one, advancing the gospel and obeying the Great Commission is a daunting task. Notice what David says in verse 1. He says, My son Solomon is inexperienced. He's young. And notice what he says. Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. The work is great. Now, back in that time, it was the work of the temple. And there would be a lot of resources and time and people and material to build this huge temple. The work is great. It's it's a monumental task to build a temple to the Lord. It will require all of these types of things. But let's think about us today. We're not building a temple. We're not building a building. As a matter of fact, we're really not building anything. There's kind of a false mentality among Christians that somehow we're called to build God's kingdom, that we're called to build the church. We don't build anything. We're not in charge of anything. Listen to what Jesus says. It's exactly the opposite. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What does Jesus say? It's my church. I'm building my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. So we are not building anything. Jesus is building his church, but it's a great work. If you're new to Emmanuel Baptist Church and you haven't been around for a while, let me just tell you what our mission statement is. Those of you that have been around for a long time, it's a good reminder. Three things that we exist to do. Number one, we exist to display God's glory. Everything's about God's glory. Everything's about putting him on display, making God the center of everything that we are. It's about his glory alone, how we can bring the most glory to our great God. We've been singing about it this morning, our great God. How do we display, how do we as a church, how do we as individuals put his glory on display for a watching world? That's number one. Number two, we exist to declare God's gospel. It's the message we declare. It's the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ 
Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And so it's the most important message we can declare. It's the most important message we can hear. It's declaring God's gospel to lost people so they can get saved. But number three, it's discipling for God's great commission. We are called to go make disciples of all nations. And discipling means that we baptize new believers, but that we train and we teach and we equip and we encourage not only just people in the church, but we go to the ends of the world with the gospel. So it's about God's glory. It's about God's gospel. It's about God's great commission. And here's these are fundamental to who we are as a church. But here's the, the thing. When you step back and you look at that, and you, you really look at that and say, okay, if God has called us to be all about his glory, if God's called us to be all about his gospel, if God has called us to go fulfill the great commission, that is a daunting task. That's a monumental task. It's an exhilarating task that God has called us to be a part of, but it's huge. It is a huge task. And so we've got to ask ourselves a question. Why is obedience to the Great Commission such a great work? It's a great work. Why is it such a great work? Our state convention of Southern Baptists has done a study of our state. And they've done a detailed study of all the communities in our state. And they've actually done a study on Sterling, Colorado. And they've done some demographic and some psychographic and some religious information. And let me tell you the findings of what these experts have come away with on our community. 66% of households in Sterling are what they call unreached. So two-thirds, 66% of our community are unreached with the gospel. Let me give you a little bit more information. 11% of households consider themselves spiritual, but definitely not evangelical. I'm spiritual, but don't talk to me about Jesus or the gospel. 41% are non-evangelical and not interested. I don't care about religion. I don't care about church. I'm not interested. And then 26% are inactive evangelicals. And this is even scarier. 26% would say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, I believe in the gospel, but I'm not active in any church. Are they really saved if they're not active? So what they've discovered is that 66% of just our town, 66%, you may disagree with this, that's okay, statistics are statistics, but whether you, you look at statistics or you look at your own neighborhood, we live among lostness, do we not? People all around us that need Jesus. And when you stop and think about it, it's a monumental task to obey the Great Commission and declare God's gospel just right here in Sterling, not to mention the unreached people groups in the far parts of the earth, like in India and Moscow and Nicaragua and places that we go to. So it is a spiritual battle first and foremost. It's a spiritual battle that people are in darkness, people are in sin. Over 66% of our, our community is lost. Now, we're not the only church called to go reach them. Thankfully, we have other churches, fine churches, great churches in our city, and we're all doing this together. It's a deeply spiritual issue. But here's the the real rub. In order for this church, this church to actually make an impact in the lostness, it actually requires resources. It requires financial resources. It requires human resources. And those just don't grow on trees. Human resources and financial resources. Our church budget, you can even look on your bulletin this morning. Our church budget is $348,948. You guys voted on that last December. 
You as a church voted and said, this is what we think our church needs in order to operate, to fulfill what God has called us as a church to fulfill. Okay, about, let's just round it up to about $350,000. Now, let me just give you a breakdown of that. It's not the whole budget, but it cost about $4,000 for us to do evangelism, to do outreach. It cost us around $5,500 to do children's ministry. It cost us around $6,000 a year to do youth ministry. And it cost us around thirty-five dollars to $40,000 a year to support all the mission work that we do around the world. And not only just here in northeastern Colorado, I'm thinking about the Kramers, Sean and Shana Kramer, Campus Crusade. We're talking about cooperative program giving, all the types of ways that we support missions. Staff, human resources, About half of our budget, $221,000, goes towards staff, and then another $63,000 goes towards the facility. So here's the reality. The money and resources we need to make disciples and to fulfill the Great Commission and to obey Jesus do not come from any outside source. It would be nice if there was some corporate Baptist headquarters somewhere in Denver that sent us money. That's not the way it works in our church. Every dime that we use to do ministry comes from those of you sitting right here. So we fund ministry ourselves. And thankfully, thankfully, if you look at your bulletin the past six months or so, we are not struggling the way we did last year. Last year we struggled. Last year we did not make budget. As a matter of fact, we cut our budget. We came up almost 30000 short last year. If you look this, this week, we're actually ahead. We've been ahead. So thankfully, you are being faithful and giving. But I want you just to think about something. How much more could we as a church be doing to impact a lost world with the gospel if more of us were faithful and giving? How much more could we do? if not just a few people here and there were giving, but all of us were generous in giving to the great work. And so the first thing we see here is it's a great work. The great work of building the temple for us, it's the great work, the daunting task, the overwhelming task of seeing a lost and dying world come to Christ through both financial resources and human resources that this church, God has called us to do. So that's the first thing we see. But here's the second thing we see in this passage. Leaders lead by example and ask others to follow. Leaders lead by example and ask others to follow. Look at verse 3. David gave out of his own resources. Moreover, in addition to that, I have provided for the holy house. I have a treasure of my own gold and my own silver. And because of my devotion to the house of God, I give it to the house of my God. David says, listen, I'm giving them my own money first. I'm not dipping into the treasury. I'm not dipping into the the tax revenue. I'm giving personally first. I'm giving of my own. Now, it's interesting here. David could have done this. What, What could have David done? David could have said, listen, the work of the temple is a great work. And my son Solomon, I'm sure he's capable. So I'm just going to sit back and relax, and I'm going to let you younger generation take care of it. You younger generation foot the bill. I'm, I, I'm kind of paid my dues. That's not what David does. David says, I'm not even going to be able to see this building get built because I'm going to die, but I'm going to give of it personally. And then he does something. He just asks people to do the same thing. Look at verse 5. At the end of verse 5, he says, Who then... Who will offer willingly? 
Who will offer willingly? That's amazing because what's David? He's a king. Could he have not said this? As king, I am making a law mandating that every single one of you have to, by compulsion, give to the offering. And if you don't, you will be jailed or you will be fined. That's not what David does. What does David do? He simply asks the question. He says, listen, I've given personally out of my treasury. The work is great. Who will give? Who will give? He just simply lays it out there and asks the question. And notice what he says. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? That's an important aspect of Christian responsibility and giving. You may write your tithe check or your giving check out to Emmanuel Baptist Church, or you may use online giving through Emmanuel Baptist Church, but you're not, in essence, really giving to Emmanuel Baptist Church. You're giving to the Lord. We need to see it first and foremost that we're giving to the Lord first, and then Emmanuel is a steward of how we use that. So giving is first and foremost to the Lord. Sadly, many televangelists and others have abused and embezzled money and have mismanaged money. I was very sad in this past week. I found out about a pastor I know in this state who had to get fired, not had to, was fired from his church. Why was he fired from his church? Well, the police, the sheriff showed up at his house numerous times. He got accused of embezzling money from the church. And the church fired him. And thankfully, he didn't get arrested. You got people like Creflo Dollar wanting to get this big jumbo jet, millions of dollars. So yes, there are some abuses to that. But notice in verse 6 how the leaders led. Verse 6, the leaders of the father's houses made their free will offerings. Also did the leaders of the tribes. It started with the leadership. David started it from the top and said, listen, I'm giving freely. Who will give? And then the leaders gave first. The leaders gave. And I can say this. I, I don't know exactly. I don't know absolutely. I don't look at giving records. I, I've made a policy. I don't look at giving records. I don't see who gives what. I don't know who pledges what. I, I don't look at any of that type of stuff. The only person that really looks at that is our financial secretary, Sherry, and I have the utmost faith and confidence in her that she w- does that in a way that protects me and protects your privacy. But I can say this. I have a hunch that our leaders in Emmanuel Baptist Church are faithful in giving, that they are stepping up to the plate and being the leaders in the great work. So here's what David says. Number one, it's a great work. Number two, leaders lead by example. But here's what we see the third thing. The people respond in giving to the great work with wholehearted joy. Look at verse 9. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly For with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Look at how many words are used in just that one verse. Just count them up. Rejoiced, willingly, whole heart, freely, rejoiced greatly. There's this great rejoicing in giving. It was a joyful, wonderful expression of financial generosity that was pleasing to the Lord. It's very similar to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7, Paul says this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And that's what's going on here. 
in this first section, verses 1 through 9, the people give generously. The people give freely. The people, people give joyfully. They gave. They gave to the great work of building the temple. But here's the second section. And it's in verses 10 through 22. And it can be summed up like this. If the first section was the people give generously, here's the second section. The king prays joyfully. The king prays joyfully. Here's what happens. David is basically floored that the people gave this much. And the first thing he does is he goes and he praises God and prays to God. So let's read David's prayer. And what we see from David's prayer, I think, are some wonderful teachings about the motivation to give. So let's pick up in verse 10. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. And I love verse 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for the building, you a house for your holy name, comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord. And on the next day offered burnt offerings to the Lord, thousand bulls, thousand rams, a thousand lambs with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. If you read the rest of the chapter, David soon dies. Now let me ask the question I asked at the very beginning. Where does the motivation to give to the great work of the Lord come from? Where does this motivation come from? Or let me ask it a different way. How did these people give so generously? Why did they give so generously? What was it about them that moved them to be so generous, to be so joyful, to be so free in their giving? Well, let me first tell you where the motivation does not come from. I think it's important to tell you where motivation does not come from. Number one, motivation does not come from guilt. Guilt is never a good motivation. I could stand up here from the pulpit and basically guilt you into giving, and guilt never works. It only lasts a short time. It's never, it's never consistent. So you don't give out of guilt. I better give because if I don't, I'm going to feel guilty. 
you also don't give out of compulsion or arm twisting. I can't be up here and twist your arm. We could say, okay, we've already passed the offering by once. I was very tempted to do the offering after this service. But I didn't want to manipulate you. I didn't want to have people at the door. You know, in some churches, the guys stand at the back of the door, and if they don't have a good offering, they, they pass it around again and again and again. As a matter of fact, I heard about this church where they were going to do a campaign to raise money, and people were going to pledge their giving. And so here's what they did. The pastor says, I've got an idea. My people are kind of stingy, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to go hire an electrician, and we're going to wire the pews. And you hang out in the back, and when the, when the, when the stewardship chairman stands up and asks people for their for their um, pledges, hit the switch and give a little electrical shock through the, to the pews. So came time for Sunday morning and the, the financial steward chairman says, who wants to pledge $50? Bzz, oh, people jumped up. All right, let's ratchet it up. Who wants to pledge $100? Bzz, high, you know, the power was higher. They jumped up. Who wants to pledge $200? Bzz, you know, everybody's jumping up. Well, finally, at the end of the service, they came back and they counted the tallies and one of the elders came to the pastor and said, we've got a problem got a major problem you have to deal with. Four members were so stubborn about their pledges that their bottoms are seared to the seats and we can't get them off. Now that's manipulation. We're not going to do that next week. It doesn't come from legalism. Your motivation doesn't come from legalism, uh, of trying to win brownie points with God by giving. It doesn't come from a false sense of understanding the wealth, wealth, and prosperity gospel, the false gospel that says, if, you know, if I sow my seed into this person's ministry, God is obligated to bless me beyond, beyond measure, and I'll get that new boat and that new car. It's, it's, not, it's not out of those unrealistic expectations. All of those are, are sh- failures fall short of what true biblical motivation is. So the question is, okay, what is the true biblical motivation for you and I to give freely, to give generously to the great work of seeing God build his kingdom, obedience to the Great Commission, and advancing the gospel? What's, What's the motivation? Well, in this passage of Scripture, we see four. Four godly motivations to give to the great work of advancing the gospel for the glory of God. Let's look at these motivations. Here's number one. Motivation number one. You worship the sovereign God as Lord over everything. Notice what David says in verse 11. He says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. He's just piling a description upon description for all that is in the heavens. Okay, so the universe, all that's on earth, things that are on the earth, is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Basically, David is saying, God, you're sovereign over everything, over heaven, over earth. God, you are sovereign sovereign over everything. And so the motivation to give starts with a view of God's sovereignty, God's majesty, God's greatness. It's the whole idea that God owns everything you don't. Let me say this loud and clear. Financial giving, first and foremost, is a worship issue, not a financial issue. It's a worship issue, not a financial issue. You see, here's what happens. Here's why you and I don't give. Let me tell you why we don't give. Because God has become small and the things of this earth have become big. 
And instead of trusting in a big God, we trust in the things of this world to give us security, to give us satisfaction. And instead of giving God everything and seeing him sovereign over everything, we tend to worship our stuff. And we don't worship the God who made the stuff. And here's the issue. A lot of times we would say, oh, God's sovereign. God is big. God's a big God. He's over the big stuff, like keeping the universe in, in, you know, in its gravitational pull. God is big over tornadoes. God's, God's got the big stuff under control. Yes, we give lip service to that, but let me ask you a question. Is God sovereign over your debit account? Is God sovereign over your checkbook? Is God big? Is he sovereign? Is he Lord over everything? And when I mean everything, everything. Is he sovereign over everything in your life? That's where the first motivation comes. It's a worship issue. Do I see God as sovereign over everything, owning everything, and he has the right to be majestic and to rule over all things? That's motivation number one. Here's motivation number two. You surrender in humility to him as the only source of everything you have. What does David say in verse 14? Who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to do this? David's blown away. David's humble. David surrendered himself to God and says, listen, I can't believe it, God. Who am I? I didn't pass a law. I didn't mandate it. I just simply led by example, called the people to give, and they gave. Who am I? He recognizes that God owns everything in the first place. He's humble. He's surrendered. And he knows that God has given him everything that he has. Let me just just ask you a question. Do you understand that? You are where you are because God put you there. You have what you have because God gave it to you. The abilities and talents and job and career you have is because God gave it to you. It wasn't because you were good. It wasn't because you were smart. Some of you are smarter than others. It wasn't because you're good looking. Some of you are better looking than others. It doesn't have anything to do with that. Everything you have in this life is because God has given it to you. He's the only source of all that. And when you come to the point where you humbly surrender yourself to that, it changes the way you view the world. I'm always reminded and I'm always blown away at what John the Baptist says in John 3.27. In John 3.27, John the Baptist answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Is that your attitude? Everything I have, my brain, my ability to get wealth, my job, my house, my career, my studies, everything I have is because God has given it to me as a gift. I didn't produce it. I didn't manufacture it. I didn't earn it. Everything I have is a gift. And God owns it, and God's the source of it all. And then basically God's saying, just give some of it back. I already own it anyway. You see, the motivation to give when, becomes when you surrender and humble yourself to realize God's the source of everything you have. Not only is he sovereign over everything, not only does he own everything, but he's the source of everything you have. A person cannot receive one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. What's motivation number three? You hold on loosely 
to the things of this world in exchange to giving generously to God's great work. You hold on loosely. Now, let me explain this loosely. And it should be loosely with an E. Verse 15. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. Our Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. Basically, he's talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who lived in tents. And David says, listen, we're strangers. We're sojourners. We're a vapor. We're a, we're a mere breath. And if you remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they never put down permanent roots. They always lived in tents. They were going here. They were going there. They were going up here. They were going down to Egypt. They were coming back. They, and then even when Moses was in the, in the wilderness, the tabernacle was portable. You had to build a tent, and it went here, and it went there. Israel always lived in this situation where they never put down roots because they're always moving around, except for right here. What's going on right here? This is the most stable, the most permanent time in Israel's history. This is the time where Jerusalem is the capital city. There's no war. David is king. His son Solomon is about ready to build the temple. And the temple would not be a tent that would move from place to place. It would be built on the temple mountain as a permanent structure. So if there ever was a time in Israel's history for David to say, listen, we've got it made. This is permanent. This is our spot. It would have been right then. But he blows that paradigm out of the water and says, listen, we are just passing through this place. So hold on loosely to the things of this world. Don't put down roots. Don't build a house. Do you guys see yourselves as actually just living in tents? Traveling around. We're strangers. We're vapors. David captures this in Psalm 39, 4-7. He says this, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you've made me a day, a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O oh Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. See, here's the point. Here's what David understood. David understood that we are just passing through this place called planet Earth. And we hold on loosely to the things of this earth because we live for that place where our true citizenship is actually held. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us in Philippians 3.20, what does he say? Our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you hold on loosely as a sojourner, as a traveler, as a mist. You, you hold on loosely to the things of this earth because you know that you're not putting down permanent roots on this earth. You're living for that day. You're living for heaven. You're, you're putting up treasures there. You're a stranger in a strange land. Randy Alcorn has written a great little book called The Treasure Principle. I encourage you to get it. So it's a little book on financial giving. Here's his point. You can't take it with you but you can send it on ahead by storing up treasures in heaven. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. 
Jesus says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. All right, let's look at motivation number four. Here's motivation number four. You joyfully give back to God out of the overflow of an upright heart. Out of an overflow of an upright heart. Look at what verse 17 and following David says. I know, my God, that you test what? The heart. And what do you have pleasure in, God? You have pleasure in uprightness. What type of uprightness? In the uprightness of my heart, I freely offered all these things. And now I've seen your people who are present here offer freely and generous to you. And I've got a prayer, God. Here's my prayer. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. Everything's about the heart. David says, listen, it's because we had an upright heart. God, you take pleasure in an upright heart. When the people uh, get, get wayward, bring them back, their hearts back to you. Everything comes back to the issue of the heart. I said it earlier. Giving is a worship issue, but it's also a heart issue. They're, in, they're intrinsically tied together. It's a spiritual issue. You and I cannot understand financial giving unless we understand that it's a heart issue first. It's an issue of the heart. Listen to what David says in Psalm 86, 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. In other words, don't give me a divided heart. Okay, let's bring this to a, to a, to a climax this morning that's, that's very interesting. I want you to notice something about this. Where, where, what book of the Bible is this? Make sure you're still awake. First Chronicles. What, what testament is this in? Old Testament. Okay, here, so here's the point. Had this people known the full expression of God's generosity in the giving of Jesus on the cross? No. They may have looked forward to it, but they had no clue that Jesus of Nazareth would come and die on the cross for their sins. So here's the amazing issue related to these people. They powerfully gave, they powerfully and generously and freely gave with the motivation out of a heart all before Jesus even came and showed them the true generosity of the Father on the cross. Now, why is that important? Why is that important? Here's why it's important. If these Old Testament people gave from the heart and they gave generously and they gave freely and they gave to the great work all before Jesus came, how much more should we who are on this side of the cross do even more because we've seen the full expression of the generosity of God in the cross? There is no excuse for the Old Testament people to outgive the New Testament people when we've got the cross. That is the greatest expression of God's generosity in giving you Jesus. God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only begotten son. Jesus sacrificially was given. He was freely given to us who were his enemies who did not deserve salvation. So if you want to look at generosity, it comes first and foremost from God's heart and is expressed most fully in Jesus Christ. So here's why we give, ultimately, the ultimate motivation to give. 
We give because Christ gave. And that's motivation enough. Just look at the cross. Now, as a pastor, how do I motivate you to give generously to the Lord? I can't. I can't. But there's one thing I can do. I can just tell us all this. Our motivation to give comes when we look at the cross. So look at Jesus. Look at the cross. Look at his generosity. And so here's the issue. When you begin to understand the gospel, when you begin to understand the generosity of Jesus, when you begin to see that Christ died for you when you were his enemy and that you did not deserve the generosity, when he gave freely, when he gave openly, when he gave of himself for you, when you begin to see that, truly see that, and then understand that, it will melt your heart to where you can't do nothing but give back to him out of joy for what he's done in giving first to you. First Corinthians, I mean, sorry, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. That's the gospel. The only way we can fully, truly have a heart that gives is when we understand Jesus gave first. So let me do something as a pastor this morning. I'm not going to arm twist. I'm not going to do an offering. But I'm going to do what David did. Go back and look at the end of verse 5. What did David say? David simply just asked a question and laid it out there. He said this, Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? That's my question to you. Who will? Who will give? Don't tell me. I don't need to know. But I'll ask the question like David did. Who will step up to the plate? Who will be melted by the glories of the cross? Who will see the sovereignty of God, that he owns everything? Who will surrender themselves in humility to realize that everything you have comes from God? Who's going to hold on loosely to the things of this world? Who's going to have an upright heart? Who's going to, this day, respond in obedience joyfully by giving back to the Lord? And so here's my prayer for you and my prayer for me. That God would move in your heart and God would soften your heart and God would do a powerful work And then he would truly be the motivation in your life to give. You're not given to me. You're not even given to Emmanuel Baptist Church. You're given to him, but it's for the great work. And what's the great work? The great work is not just so we can pack this place with ourselves. The great work is to reach a lost and dying world that's going to hell without the message of the gospel. That's the great work. And it requires resources. It requires financial resources and human resources. And it's a shame for the Old Testament people to show us up in giving when we've been given the greatest expression of generosity in the cross of Christ. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning as we bring this David sermon series to a close. And would you spend time just asking God to search your heart and ask him to give you that motivation. Only he can give you the motivation. I can't do it. Ask him to give you the motivation to be generous and to give to the great work of advancing the gospel and obeying the Great Commission.
thankful for the fact that you are a generous God. If you had been stingy like the Walmart people, we would never have salvation. And Jesus, Philippians 2, says that you were not stingy. You did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made yourself nothing, coming in the form of a servant, and became obedient even to death on the cross. So Jesus, you left the glories of heaven to come serve and die for us, even when we did not deserve it. And that is great generosity. There's generosity in the cross. And Lord, when we talk about finances, it's very personal. And some people may think, Pastor Sean's moved from preaching to meddling. But Holy Spirit, I just pray that you'd invade our hearts with the truth of what the Scripture says. Not necessarily what Pastor Sean says, but what does the Scripture say? What does God want us to be about this morning? Would we be a generous people, Father? Would you, would you put godly motivations in us to give? It would be a great day to see just the joy of the Lord flowing in this church when people learn the joy of giving, the joy of financially giving of their resources, giving of their time, giving of their human resources, their talents, their, their abilities. Father, may we be an obedient church, obedient in finances, but ultimately obedient to the Great Commission of seeing your gospel advance and you build your kingdom in this world for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.